Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial subjects with interesting people. Dave Rubin is the host of The Rubin Report and the author of Don't Burn This Book, Thinking for Yourself in an Age of Unreason. Uh, but I'm sure that you're all familiar with his commentary. His interviews draw you know, millions of viewers to discuss subjects, not just about the politics of the day, but about the search for truth, what it means to be free, all kinds of things that I think you know, maybe 10 years ago, none of us would have expected would draw millions and millions of people. But there's such a search for you know, honest conversation, not just about politics, but about uh, what it means, you know, to be human. Um, and, and Dave has has been such a great contributor to that conversation. So I'm so pleased to have you, Dave Rubin, here on High Noon. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, it seems kind of funny. Like, why do we have to spend so much time having these conversations that seemingly are about obvious things like truth is good, freedom is good, individual choice is good. I thought we settled a lot of that stuff, but apparently we have not. And uh, just like you, it gives me a lot to do during the day. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and you're famously somebody who has um, experienced a type of political conversion. You started out more on the left for a long time. You considered yourself or you, you labeled yourself as a classical liberal. Um, I don't know if that's something that you still call yourself, um, but you certainly engage with the traditionalists, right? You engage with folks um, who, who unabashedly call themselves conservative. Um, and, and you don't have that kind of uh, fear of being lumped in, I think, um, with the right that some folks who maybe have doubts about wokeism um, really do. But because you've been engaging with all these different parts of the political spectrum um, and these different coalitions, I I'm wondering what you think their future together or is, or whether they actually have a future together. Because if you have, you know, sort of left liberals uh, like Bill Maher, or you have, you know, classical liberals, conservatives, traditionalists, new right types, um, you know, meme edgelords <laughs> uh, types, you know, you have all of these different kinds of people with very different priorities, different, even different ways of looking at truth and reason and, and political structure in the most fundamental way. I mean, what do you think the, the future of this coalition is? Can it actually come together to do something effective? Can we sort of learn from each other? You know, what's going to happen with all of these cats in a sec? Yeah, I like how you're going to the hardest question first. That should set us up nicely for the rest of the interview. This is the big question, right? As we have watched this very weird realignment of politics, this, this odd yet perhaps necessary destruction of what was old politically and just the sort of Democrat versus Republican, traditional liberal versus conservative, left versus right thing, which in, in large part is because Donald Trump came in and just, you know, threw the chessboard up or, uh, you know, broke through the ice, whatever, or he was the you know, the, the bull in the China shop, whatever analogy you want to use, because he did all that, it has left us now five years later in this very weird spot. Now, I would argue that him doing it was necessary, by the way. I mean, we were really on a slow descent to hell uh, without fully realizing it. Trump unearthed a lot of stuff. So now we can all see the fakeness of the media. We can see the collusion of the Democratic Party with the media and how if you fight for basic constitutional rights, basic human rights, you're often labeled a racist and a Nazi and everything else. So just to be clear about one thing, I absolutely was a lefty and a progressive. I mean, you can find videos. I'm not proud of them. You can find videos of me in 2015 supporting Bernie Sanders. I was on the Young Turks network. I mean, that's, that's as progressive, sort of loony left at this point, I would say, as you can get. And then, you know, what happened was I started talking about well, wait a minute. I thought we lefties were the ones that were supposed to defend uh, individual rights. I thought human dignity and liberty uh, and true tolerance and equality. I thought those were things of the left. But I saw very early on, because I was part of it, what was so wrong with the left, which now everyone sees that it's become this really hegemonic, authoritarian, um, draconian, I would say, institution that you have to believe exactly what they believe the second they believe it. Otherwise, you're on the outs. And I just started talking about that and saying, hey, these are not actually the liberal principles that I know of. Speaking of classical liberalism, which is really what I defended in my book, the idea of individual rights, of laissez-faire economics, things of that nature, that the left had completely abandoned all those things, that the ACLU of 2022 is the polar opposite of the ACLU of 1971 that was defending the rights of Nazis to march in Skokie, Illinois, which had the highest percentage of Holocaust, of Jewish Holocaust survivors in the United States, but the ACLU actually defended their right to speak freely, however noxious 
obviously their views are. Uh, but something had really, really shifted. And I just started talking about that. And I kept saying, you know, we as lefties, sort of the way Bill Maher does it now, five years ago, I was going, hey, we lefties, we better think this through. We seem to be abandoning all of our principles. What's going on here? And what happened was that all of these people on the right started saying, hey, Dave, I'll talk to you. Let, let's chat about this. Let's chat about it. And these people that I thought were evil or racist or something like that, Ben Shapiro, Larry Elder, Glenn Beck, Dennis Prager, what I realized was, boy, maybe I have some political disagreements with them, which at this point now are you know, shrinking almost by the day. Um, but they're decent people and they want to live in the same country that I want to live in. And they want to agree to disagree and respect our differences. And then suddenly all I got was hate from the left. And now everyone sort of sees that. So that's how I sort of got the, in, the, the sort of initial view, let's say, of, of wokeism and cancel culture and all that. But to your question specifically about can this thing come together, I think the answer is yes. I really do. But it is a huge if. And if it doesn't come together, if we think we're in trouble right now, we're in much worse trouble. Because the, the woke thing, you have to give it credit. It has destroyed so much. It has destroyed our political institutions, our cultural institutions. It has infected almost all of our corporations. Neo-racism is promoted everywhere. I mean, the, the stuff that Martin Luther King used to rail against is now the stuff that is pushed on us everywhere. We all know this, right? He didn't want his children to be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. That's the reverse of the way the wokesters are pushing. So now can this alliance of, say, traditional conservatives, say, religious conservatives, say, California conservatives, who maybe aren't as religious, uh, maybe have different views on even abortion, something like that, throw in, you know, the libertarians who just want, you know, the government out of everything altogether, while conservatives generally want some level of government to protect the, their conservative values. Um, you, could, you threw in a couple of others, the meme lords and like the whole thing. And then, and then you take the ex-liberals, right? You take these other people that are coming alongside. I would put myself a little more in that libertarian side of this thing. Can we all figure this out? Well, I think we have to figure it out. And it's going to be extremely uneasy at times. But we have, a, we have a common enemy, which is an enemy that is here to destroy America. And if all of the groups that we just mentioned believe that America, that this project is fundamentally good and that you should be able to live in this country regardless of your skin color, and that we should treat everyone equally, and that you know it then comes down to luck and hard work and everything else. But that all the that what America can do is create the conditions for freedom, and then you know what I would argue is that the the say traditional more religious conservatives, let's say, they should be trying to keep all of their cultural institutions and religious institutions how they see fit. That's great. That's absolutely great. Whether whether those are Catholic institutions or Jewish institutions or whatever that may be. And we can talk about where that can touch related to public and private and government and all of those things. Um, then there'll be the more libertarian side, again, that just want government out of everything so that maybe they'd want marijuana legalized. Now, traditionally, conservatives don't really want that, even though they like limited government. So here's a place where we're at like a little bit of a loggerhead, right? Conservatives, they don't want drugs legalized because they're worried about the slippery slope. Libertarians want more personal choice. I think these are all things that we can work through. I don't know how we're going to do all of it. And I think that there's a bunch of us trying to do it. But if we don't do it, it's over. We, we all sense that. Like the, the America of 2022 right now is very, very different than America of two years ago, this very month, right? It really is because this was just February of 2020 was just when the COVID lockdowns were about to start. If we could all reset that clock and go back to that, I'm pretty sure most of us would. And most of us might be grabbing ourselves and going, man, wake up this moment because you're about to give a whole hell of a lot away. And if we could just reset to that and say, okay, we got some differences, but the, the religious conservative is not the enemy of the libertarian or even the ex-liberal. Is it going to be messy? Are we going to disagree about some foreign policy stuff and some border stuff? And again, even abortion, which is obviously the, you know, the biggest one for conservatives usually. Yes, it's going to be messy. But I would say I'm optimistic on it. I'm bullish on it. And I, I just see no choice. The other choice is much worse. The other choice ends with us in the gulag. I would prefer not to do that. Yeah, I mean, I, I totally agree with you that um, I, I do think that this this 
impulse, whether we call it wokeism or whatever, I just haven't found a better word than wokeism, not because it's offensive in any way, but it's just, it, it, it seems through overuse to get less precise and that bothers me, but, but there is this ideology, um, that as you say, has infected, you know, public and private institutions, virtually every hall of power, virtually every pipeline to be able to, to push any levers of power, whether those are government or private levers of power. Um, but I wanted to ask you because because you still do consider yourself um, more of a libertarian. I've, I've made plenty of critiques of libertarianism on the show, um, but I do think that there's something. There is a leave me alone impulse in American in the American soul still, right? Um, whether you call it Jeffersonian, whether you call it kind of a a, a more base kind of a reaction, Americans have a very strong, usually have a very strong cultural reaction. Uh, against being told what to do, they're they're sort of crotchety in that way. Um, you know, what is left of this Jeffersonian impulse in America, uh, considering the the lockdowns? Right, we're watching what's happening in in Canada with the truckers. Um, in America, it seems federalism has kind of uh, tamped down a little bit on that pushback impulse because people are able to sort themselves into, you know, people who are really against it can move to Florida and, and so on. Um, I mean, where do you see that Jeffersonian impulse against these kinds of restrictions going in, in, in the next several months, especially now, as it seems there are blue state governors who are, are starting to roll back some of these mandates? Yeah, it's a great question, you know, because uh, first off, I would say, even though I do have some libertarian impulses, obviously, and I don't want the government to have that much power, I don't think the government should have no power. I don't, I don't describe myself as an anarchist, you know, a guy like Michael Malice, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who is a good buddy of mine who I've had on the show a million times. I love him. I think he's such a great political thinker. I'm not in the same camp as him. I love those conversations, um, but I'm not there. I would say I've actually gone more towards sort of the based conservative position because it's a position we can fight from. And I think we really do need to fight. Uh, but let's hold that for a second so I can answer your question specifically, which is, that what you just described there, the idea that we are going back to the federalist system is actually quite beautiful. And it also shows you that the system that our founders laid out really did have enough, well, hopefully had enough trap doors that when the bad guys were really there, we were going to be able to figure out ways around them. Look, I'm a guy that spent the last eight years of my life in California, in Los Angeles, the, the hotbed of leftism. Uh, you know, I fought very hard for the recall of Gavin Newsom, who I think is the worst of most of the things that we're going to talk about here. Uh, I campaigned with Larry Elder, who was a good, decent man, uh, who did not want to be a politician, but felt that it was being thrust upon him because of how bad the system was there. It did not work, obviously did not work. And then three days after the recall, I was audited by the state of California. I mean, how much more do you want? that these people use the levers, as you said, the levers of power, they use them to punish their political opponents. That was the final straw for me. I mean, obviously I was very frustrated in California for two years at least. That was the final straw. I'm in Florida now and it's like living in another country. And guess what? That's good. It's good. It's great actually that I live in a, in a state that now is aligned for the most part with my views. Now that, there, look, there are plenty of people that are Democrats or liberals that are not happy with DeSantis. I think they're obviously very misguided because if they want to wear a mask, they can wear a mask. And if they don't want to go out, they don't have to go out. But the federalist system, the idea that we have these states that are operating independently so this experiment can move around and you can choose where you want to live with your foot vote um, is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So I think we're just going to have to do more and more of that. I, look, I want us to remain the United States of America. I think this is a worthy experiment. And, we, and this country has done extraordinary things in 200 years. More people have come here from all walks of life, every corner of the earth, to, to free themselves and free their ancestors. And they've done it. They've done it. Like, I know, I, I don't know where your grandparents are from, um, but I guarantee you, you have it better than they do. I, I, you know, like, I know it. I don't even have to ask. I know you. I know that you do, and I do too. And every time I've ever gone to a college event, when I ask that question, almost without exception, everyone knows that to be true. There are some really weird exceptions to that, like if your grandparents or your great grandparents were oil tycoons in America in the 1920s, maybe you don't have it as good as them. But I think you get the point. And we have to we have to protect something that was so good. We we let the barbarians in. Douglas Murray, who I'm sure you're familiar with, who's a great British conservative. 
you know, he has a line that I often quote. It's like, you know, the barbarians are at the gate and we're basically de uh, debating what gender pronoun to call them. This is a problem. They're here. The communists, the, the wokesters, whatever you want to call that thing, that it is here and we must stop debating the nit the nitty gritty of it and figure out how to fight it. And I think we do that by going to different states, focusing on your local community, et cetera. So at what point then, because I, I also am a huge proponent of federalism. I think it was, it has shown the wisdom of the founder system over the last uh, two years. Um, but there is a point where different, you, you said it yourself, you know, you feel like you're going to a different country. Um, at, at what point does this sorting, this great political sorting, um, realign itself truly into to two different countries? I mean, at, at what point does, uh, you, you still have to have, because even, even in a federalist system, you have to agree, especially actually in, in a, a country like America, where there are so many people with different creeds, different religions, different backgrounds, different ep ethnic um, composition and their families, like uh, different commitments. Different, I mean, like everything, we are an incredibly polyglot society. And what I worry about is that at this point, yep. when there is nobody in the public square there's virtually no proposition that you and I can state at whatever level of, of abstraction about America that's going to garner even, let's say, 80 or 90 percent of the population behind it because the left has moved away from some of those more basic fundamental things like America is good. The American system was wise. Uh, it has created prosperity and freedom uh, for so many generations of Americans. Even things as basic as that are, are highly contested in that context, to have folks sort of uh, separating themselves physically, do, do you ever worry about the fact that we're building parallel systems? Yes, and it may just be, I don't wanna say a necessary, a necessary evil because I don't know that it's inherently evil. It may just be a necessary construct that we have to deal with, let's put it that way. So if, if you just see what's going on in America right now, we, we've covered this on my show a whole bunch, obviously, because of my move, but hundreds of thousands of people, almost 400,000 people moved out of California in the last year and a half, roughly. Um, California had its first net loss of population ever as a state during COVID. And where are they all moving? They're moving to Texas, they're moving to Tennessee and to Florida. New York is losing population. Where are they going? The same places. Nobody, I mean, there's really nobody that is saying, I can't take it in Florida, where they have basically left us alone, I'm moving to New York and I would like to pay, you know, 10% more in income tax. I would like to be locked down, not sure if I can go to work. I'd like my kids to be in masks forever, et cetera, et cetera. So now the problem is that Florida is freaking flourishing right now. The economy is strong. Everywhere that I go, people are happy. They're out and about. If anything, I'm in the Miami area. It's like we got a lot of traffic now because everybody's, that's what the old Miami residents are complaining about because now so many people have come here. But I can tell you, I, I live in the suburbs in the area that I'm in. They're knocking down houses left and right, construction everywhere. House prices are high because so many people are moving in. So people that have been here for a long time are going to get more money for their houses. There is a system here that is flourishing, really, really flourishing. The, the Miami mayor, as you know, Suarez, this guy has welcomed the tech people here and the tech people who are more libertarian generally, although San Francisco went woke, I think they really understand why they're here right now. And they're, they're I think, going to vote the right way. I certainly hope they're going to vote the right way. Um, the problem is that as Florida specifically, because I think Florida is really the model, as Florida flourishes and New York and California continue to crumble, I mean, think about this. Gavin Newsom, who, you know, I, I genuinely believe he is an evil person. I, I don't know how to say it in any other way after everything he's done in the last two years and the way he treated Larry Elder. Um, he now is lifting his mask mandate because you alluded to it earlier. They're finally coming around on this because they realize they're going to get crushed in the midterms. And by the way, watch the way the media is going to somehow over the next six months twist it so that people will think that it was the Democrats who always wanted to open things up and the Republicans who always wanted to keep things closed. But Gavin Newsom, he's opening up, but still the head of, of the Department of Health in Los Angeles is still saying, no, we're not going to open up. It's like it never ends in these bureaucratic, nightmarish systems. And what's going to happen is the more that Florida flourishes and the more that New York loses its tax base because the wealthy people are leaving, the more that the average Californian just can't take it anymore. And maybe they move to Arizona if they don't want to come all the way across the country. They're not going to, the blue states will not 
allow the red states to flourish. This is the answer to your question, is the red states will do just fine and they won't ask anything of the, of the blue states. You, you never see people in red states or, or politicians in red states like, we want the tax money of the people in the, the blue states. We want them to do this. But you see it the other way. And that's why Newsom knows no matter how badly he runs California, what happens? He gets federal government money, which is taxpayer money, obviously, to bail himself out. But now if you're the good, decent citizen of Florida who has voted in the right person, say DeSantis in this case, the right senators, you've lived your life roughly, honestly, and decently within your means. And now you realize that any of your tax dollars, of your federal tax dollars, are going to bail out these leftist lunatics in in California, you're going to be really pissed. And also the next step of this, which is really dystopian, is at what point do these people that love federal government power, mostly Democrats, start leveraging that to, to, I don't know what that means exactly, but to really infringe on the rights of the free states. So we're going to have free states that are going to have to figure out how to band together. Um, I don't know if that means more National Guard or controlling their own borders differently. I, I know this is all crazy stuff, but it's at some level, but it's being discussed in a lot of these base circles that you and I are in. You know, our buddy Dave Raboy uh, has been talking about this for quite some time that maybe we need this national divorce. I don't really like it because I think we'll end up in a, in a sort of perpetual cold war. Um, but I think the best thing we can do right now is, is to hopefully live in a place that is roughly close to your means or your way of life and do the best you can to fight for it. And then we see, I think that's it. So I, I, so I live in New York and I, I moved here uh, from California originally. So I'm from the San Francisco Bay area, all that, that kind of, so moved to DC Lord, for 10 it. years. So I've, I've never really lived um, in, in a place that reflects my values, but uh, I think the, the more important thing, so some people do this by moving, others do it by trying to do it where they are, even if they disagree with the surroundings. Um, but it seems to me that you're right about building something outside something um, outside of the traditional structures, whether that's uh, by moving to a wholly different jurisdiction in another state, or whether that's, for example, building an alternative to um, the the corporate media model, whether that's building an alternative to tech power. Um, One of the things that happened uh, just recently here, of course, is that Rumble, the company that is merged with with your company, Locals, um, has made this enormous offer to Joe Rogan um, for $100 million to come off of the Spotify platform where there has been all this attendant pressure uh, on him to take down um, take down some of his episodes, to apologize, all the usual cancel culture stuff that uh, we're now very familiar with this playbook. It's been run against a lot of other people. Um you know, could you tell us a little bit about that offer and then why that's important, not just in terms of making sure that people can experience the Joe Rogan experience, right? Um, but but also what what that kind of competition within the the um, within the tech space might actually mean for fighting back against what seems to be a pretty universal cultural collusion among a bunch of these companies that they they don't want dissenting voices to uh, use use their products and and by that um, primarily to get out views that they don't agree with. I like that one, you know, as cultural collusion, because that's what it is. That's what they really are doing. It's corporate cultural collusion. Look, this thing is much bigger than Joe Rogan. So yeah, I created Locals, which basically was a subscription model sort of to fight Patreon and help get me and the show that I do, The Rubin Report, off of the rails of big tech. And then we started building out a really great feature set where you'd own the data and you'd own the content. And we had our own video player. We have our own video player and you can live stream from your phone, all this cool stuff. And then I realized, hey, you know, you can't fight big tech alone. And then Rumble came along and they said, hey, you know, we're building really a replacement to Amazon AWS and YouTube. So we merged the companies about six months ago. I'll tell you the total truth as to what happened with the Rogan thing. I was at uh, a big Rumble meeting. They were having their sort of first ever corporate meeting with with most of the employees from all over the world in Sarasota, Florida on Monday. We were at a dinner on Sunday night to sort of kick off the day. And uh, we were all talking about the Rogan thing because obviously that's the big cultural moment of the cultural moment right now. And uh, I said, hey, you know, we really need to do something that changes the game. Why don't we just offer Rogan a hundred million bucks? Now, 100% honestly, I have no idea how much Rumble has in the bank. I was just saying something like, like, let's shock the system. That's what I kept saying. Let's shock the system. 
Well, Chris, who is the Rumble CEO, was sitting across from me at the table and he's like, yeah, I like it. I like it. We should do that. And he turned to the lawyer and he said, could we do that? And the lawyer kind of freaked out for a second. He's like, I don't know. I'd have to, you know, we have to talk to the accountants or look at the books. Chris walked away, came back about 10 minutes later. He made a couple calls, talked to uh, the powers that be, the money people. And they said we could go ahead and do it. And we wrote that. I actually wrote that release that went live on Rumble's Twitter. I wrote it on my phone. Uh, that's exactly the text that we use the next morning. And the offer is totally legit. And I said it on Fox this morning, and I'll say it on your show right now. If Rogan, I know he has obviously heard of the offer at this point. Look, we're offering a hundred million bucks to to have you be completely uncensored, put all of your episodes back. You know, he put he took out forty six episodes before he signed. You know, when he signed the deal with Spotify originally, you know, two years ago or so, year and a half ago, whatever it is, he allowed himself to have 46 episodes removed. So he knew at some level that this was going to happen, right? Because it's when you signed your name on the dotted line for the 100 mil, you, you, it was already there. The problem was already there. Now it's, it's something like another 80 or so are gone, uh, including Michael Malice, two of his that we mentioned before. Um, so we're offering Rogan a chance to, hey, take the money and run, man. We're going to put all your stuff up and you can do whatever you want to do. Nobody thinks Joe Rogan's a racist. Nobody thinks Joe Rogan is a misinformation specialist who's killing people. If you're worried about misinformation, you should be far more worried about CNN than you should be about Joe Rogan. So the offer is legit and it's, and it's a starting point, by the way. You know, it's like, let his people negotiate. Let's see. But we're trying. We're really trying. You know, it's not just, you can't just talk about these things. You know this. You can't just talk about these things. You got to try to do something about them. And this is our way of trying to do something. Do you worry that just like um, folks who tried to do something about the censorship on Twitter, right? And then there was there were these alternatives, Gab, Parler. Um, you started one, of course, yourself, which wasn't really, a, um, it was more of a, like Locals is not, it, it has a lot more than Twitter. It's not just, you know, yeah. it was more of a Patreon characters, but, than a Twitter competitor. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, you know, don't, don't you worry that this will just get kicked up one level back? And maybe this is something that, you guys have talked about at Rumble, at, at Locals, um, but the very infrastructure of, of the internet being able to, um, you know, being able to access the, the equivalent, I guess the equivalent, and I'm not a tech person, but the equivalent would be being able to use the roads, yep. right? Um, being able to use the basic infrastructure, uh, even if you have a separate company that's a competitor for Amazon or for Twitter, um, it, it seems like it, the, 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 the whole battle just gets kicked back um, one more level. I mean, are, are you guys building out, quote unquote, your entire internet? Is that the idea? Yeah, that is the idea. And that's what, that's what Rumble is doing. That's why we wanted to do this merger. So what people think Rumble, mo when most people think of Rumble, they think it's a YouTube competitor because that's what the sort of front-facing front side of Rumble is. If you go to rumble.com, you know, it looks like YouTube. So people think it's just a place for video. What Rumble really is, is infrastructure of the internet. It's an Amazon AWS replacement. So Amazon AWS, uh, Amazon Web Services. That's what pretty much everyone uses to get online, to put their website on. It's the sort of ubiquitous server farm of the internet. So Parler, which is the best example of what you're talking about, after January 6th, we all know what happened. Amazon just blew them up. They literally just pressed a button. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a physical button or it's a dial or it's touchscreen or whatever, but they, in effect, they pressed a button and they blew up uh, a website that was a functioning business with 23 million users. Um, in essence, for no good reason, by the way, because we now know that there was far more coordination uh, regarding the January 6th events on Facebook than there were on Parler. It's a whole other separate discussion whether anyone should have been blown up or censored or anything. My general belief would be no, um, but we cannot be blown up that way. Um, uh, Rumble has incredible, incredible infrastructure. Now, I will be very clear that that is not the only problem. There are payment processor problems, meaning the banks can shut you down, Stripe can shut you down, all of those things. We're now working with a, a new payment processor. Uh, we're making sure that users own their data so that if something happens, let's say something really did happen that we can't even explain right now, that we just haven't solved yet, you still have your data. So we're dealing with this in, I think, the most holistic way. I I'm, look, I'm not going to sit here and BS you like we've solved all of the problems of the internet. And of course, there's obviously, most of this ultimately will come down to truly decentralized options where they just can't take out one thing. Uh, but you know, there's problems with decentralization too, because once something's fully decentralized, 
I mean, this was literally the plot of Silicon Valley, the show on HBO. Um, you know, all sorts of horrible stuff can be on there. I'm talking, you know, child porn and snuff films and really and how, how to build bombs, whatever it might be. I mean, evil stuff. And it's like, do you want to give those tools to lots of bad people? Like, these are all things that have to be grappled with and dealt with from a, I would say, a, a, a philosophical perspective, from a political perspective, from a moral perspective, legal perspective, et cetera. So we're doing the best we can, but your question is completely on point. Like, where are all the choke off points? So we're dealing with the infrastructure one, we're dealing with the payment processor one, we're, we're dealing with the data one, but there are others. Uh, and unfortunately, I can't tell you everything that we're working on, obviously, because not everybody likes us. It's weird. <laughs> um, I mean, so I'm thinking about the last like week and a half or, or actually extended out to the last like two or three weeks here. We have three different, at least three different modes of essentially getting at somebody whose beliefs were outside of the parameters of what is set by not the majority of the American people, most of these, um, you know, but, but by essentially, um, and I, I, I'm, I'm highly conscious that I use this phrase, like literally every podcast. So, um, but the managerial class or an elite class, Mm -hmm. um, I know it's a tough, it's like trying to come up with the right right word for that without sounding conspiratorial or something, but there's this set of acceptable views that are, that are created by somebody, whatever the hell that is, whatever you want to call that, I think is what we're talking about here. Yeah. I'm just, um, I, I'm more <laughs> as, a, as somebody who does come from the right and was conservative and, and, um, has, has been conservative for a long time. Like these, these, uh, class arguments don't roll easily off my mm-hmm. tongue. Right. I, yeah. I very much believe in, in the American free enterprise system and, and, um, the ability of people to, to fail and succeed. And, and I don't believe in it that, for example, we shouldn't have any billionaires, right? Um, but but there does seem to be a certain amount of class hardening in America, and it kind of I'm unable to avoid that. That's actually uh, the analysis or the lens through which uh, a lot of things that are happening around us make most sense. Um, but we have these three different incidents, right? We have uh, what's what we just talked about with Joe Rogan. Um, we have. Uh, what happened to Ilya Shapiro in Georgetown Law? He's on administrative leave um, for a view that, on the base of it, um, in terms of selecting Supreme Court justices without regard to to the color of their skin or their sex, seventy six percent of Americans agree with. And then you have somebody who's truly on on the fringes, um, Michelle Malkin, who was refused service from not from Twitter, not from a tech company, but from Airbnb. Right. Um, and we've had kind of similar instances like that where um, banks have refused to either process payments or um, banks have refused to hold uh, to actually open accounts for, for example, the NRA. Right. So um, it seems that this this tech collusion problem has gone well, well beyond social media or a handful of companies like Amazon and Google. And it has now jumped into real life. Yep to the point where if, if they decide that you are noxious, whether the majority of Americans agree with that assessment or not, uh, you, you do not have access potentially to a lot of services in real life. Um, and, and competitors have been slow to spring up. I mean, I know that's what you're working on over there at Rumble, but, um, you know, do you think this is the beginning of a type of social credit system? And, how how do we deal with that kind of social credit system uh, when when perhaps it's not enforced by government? Because I think sort of all these these different critiques from the right, it's easy for us to to at least theoretically deal with the idea of government censorship. We say, okay, the First Amendment. Um, you know, we we don't believe that government has the right to impinge on on these natural rights that people have, including to the freedom of speech. When it's a private system and an entirely private system that is nonetheless colluding with each other so that the natural remedies of the market are at least stifled in terms of just being able to take your business elsewhere, what what do we do with that in terms of preserving freedom? Because I, I don't think there's actually all that much difference in the end of the day between the government enforcing censorship where you go to jail if you say the wrong thing and saying you can't get a job, mm-hmm. you can't travel, you can't hold a bank account. I mean, that is more than enough to shut most people up. 
that would send an awful lot of people to Squid Games. If you didn't watch that show on Netflix, you should, because it sort of explains a bit of it. Um, well, first off, we should just briefly mention just the hypocrisy of the whole thing. I mean, the idea that Michelle Malkin, regardless of what, whether you agree with her politically or not, that she can't go to an Airbnb because of her beliefs. I mean, the same people who will applaud that all day long. Oh, see, they're stopping this hateful woman. Those are the same people who would tell you that the uh, baker should have to bake a cake against his own religious free will. I would not force that baker to bake a cake. Um, but, you know, hypocrisy sort of knows no bounds these days. So putting the hypocrisy aside, um, this is why we have to build new things. Uh, it's coming. The, the social credit score, uh, Glenn Beck just wrote a whole book about it. I had him on my show last week. I mean, he's talking a lot about this. You know, this was conspiracy stuff two years ago, right? This is what Alex Jones was screaming about two years ago, and now everyone's sort of realizing it's here. Why would you demand that everyone have a vaccine passport to go to a football game or to enter McDonald's? Would it is it really about the vaccine passport? Or once they have that, that piece of identification, then they can associate that with all their other behaviors and what you say online and can we listen to you when you're at home because you've got Alexa and all of these really crazy dystopian things. Yeah, it's all kind of coming here. And you're right. People are being denied bank accounts and a whole bunch of other things. So what do we do? I mean, the, it's, it's the same thing. I mean, you're a free market person too. It's like the best thing we can do is build better things that are not affected by this. And, and this is where you have to give the devil his due. The way they infected all of the institutions, culturally, economically, politically, educationally, it's extraordinary what they did. You know, some people, there's a lot of people that have talked about this quite extensively. James Lindsay is one of them in terms of how they did it over decades, really starting through uh, the universities. But it leaked out everywhere. They captured all of the institutions and you have, you know, people like the CEO of Spotify basically apologizing for having the Joe Rogan show on his network, even though it's the number one show on the network, obviously, and generates a ton of revenue. He's apologizing to a bunch of 22-year-olds who work at the company in HR. And it won't just stop with the apology. This thing is a totalitarian set of ideas that is designed, purely designed, not accidentally designed. It is designed to topple the entire American enterprise and, and thus the Western world. So the best thing that we can do is build separate structures and build them properly, whether it is the Amazon AWS replacement or whether it is a freaking hardware store or whether you as a, as a general contractor, whatever you might be in your business, you're going to hire and work with people aligned with your views. It's a very, it's, it's a sort of depressing thing in a certain respect, but here, let's put it this way. I, I have two companies, so I, I, we, I don't run locals anymore, but I'm involved obviously in locals, but I have my production company that runs my show. So I have several employees and people come to my, my houses, uh, where my studio is, people come in and out. Like I don't demand that everyone that works with me, uh, believe the same things that I believe politically. I don't know everyone's political beliefs, but I would never allow a wokester to work for me. You can call that discrimination or whatever it might be, but I would never allow it. I would not allow even if that person said, I'm the best programmer or I'm the best director or whatever it might be, I would never allow them in. They're here to destroy something. And, and we must build things with the safeguards to ensure that we don't al allow those barbarians to come into the gate, but they're in the gate everywhere. The only choice, I mean, unless you've got something that I've never heard of, the only choice is to build better things. Um, so I've been thinking a lot about this distinction that you just pointed to, right? Um, which is this freedom of association uh, that then that we fought for, um, for, for the baker, right. For, um, for Jack Phillips uh, to determine that he did not want to bake a cake for a gay wedding. Um, I think it's important to make that distinction because it wasn't that he was turning away gay customers. Um, it was, right. that he which of course they never, they never tell you that in mainstream media, that it wasn't that he didn't let them into the store to buy something that was on the shelf, which would have been against the civil rights act. It was a custom cake. And by the way, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but by the way, everyone knows that if there was a painter who took uh, commissions online that was a Jewish painter, would you force them to paint Nazi imagery if a white nationalist said, I want you to actually paint Jews going to the gas chambers in Auschwitz? No one in their right mind would say, yes, that artist should be forced to take that commission. But this is, again, there's no end to the hypocrisy. So it's like now, yes, yes, we're very, very proud of Airbnb for stopping Michelle Malkin.
Yeah, and, and, and that's that's one of the legal distinctions between these cases. Um, but the broader societal distinction that I've been thinking a lot about is is the fact that the, the phrase I used before, this cultural collusion, right? It's not really a problem if Twitter kicks off, you know, me or you. It's not a problem in itself, in isolation, right? Because then you think, okay, well, I can go to Facebook or I can go to um, YouTube or I can go to wherever. So that I, I can express my views and communicate to people online from these different companies. And similarly, it's not really a problem if Airbnb turns away Michelle Malkin because somebody says, I don't want to work with this person. I think her views are noxious. Um, I don't want to work with this person. The real problem is that we know if she's turned away from Airbnb, she will be turned away from Uber. If she's turned away from Uber, she will be turned away from Lyft. If she's turned away from, and um, one one very concrete way I've been thinking about this is that um, there was the Equality Act was was debated in Congress, right? And, and it included a very controversial aspect, which was putting uh, gender identity into the Civil Rights Act, right? So all the the arguments we're having about whether you know men biological men should be able to participate in women's sports whether they should be able to uh, be housed in prison for example with with biologically female inmates um all of these questions right it would it this is very very controversial i'm i'm on one side of them but this is something that americans are debating hotly right now um, and this piece of legislation would take a radical position on that federal law you're not allowed to dis to to discriminate, quote unquote, which would mean to distinguish between men and women biologically in any context. Okay, there's a list of companies that support that legislation. There's a letter that was sent to Congress. If you can name a household American company name that is not on that list, I will pay you. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, if if you don't yeah. like Delta's yeah. politics. Southwest is on there too. So is American, you know, all major pharmaceutical companies, every major bank, um, you know, Walmart, Amazon, right? Like you, there's very little ability to actually take your business somewhere else where these companies, they're not colluding in the traditional antitrust sense where they're sitting down and saying, we're going to create a monopoly. We're going to raise the prices and there won't be any competitive um, effect to bring the, the, the price down because customers will have nowhere to go. But what they are saying is we all came through the same universities. We all share the same cultural ideology. And if one of us locks out a group of people um, from, from our product, the rest of us, we can count on the fact that the rest of the sector will follow. Um, and, and therefore, they don't really have to worry about competing with each other for that customer because they can count on that cultural um, collusion, which is not at all the case with an individual small business. It's not the case with a cake shop. There are in that one town, there are doubtless countless cake shops that would have be happy to bake that cake for that gay wedding. So there is a natural kind of, um, you know, alternative for people with different views to associate how they please and still be able to participate in the public square and to be part participants in an economy. I don't know that when you have this type of agreement across sectors, across huge corporations, that it's the same solutions don't work. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I agree. I agree. That's why I'm not sitting here telling you like, oh, we've solved all of this. And, you know, it's not, as I always say, when it comes to big tech censorship, it's like, I'm not that concerned about the things we know they're doing, like shadow banning. I'm more concerned about the things we have no idea that they're doing. Like, we have literally no idea how these people are manipulating us in ways that we can't imagine, whether it's through our YouTube feed, if they just want to completely change your view politically. Could they just keep feeding you things one way or another or, or radically alter your recommended videos so that within two weeks they can completely rewire you? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, there's some studies on that and some people have tried to figure out some of that stuff. But you're right, on the corporate collusion side, I mean, look at it this way. When, when Trump, after January 6th, was kicked off everything. Now, how did he get kicked off everything? These are independent companies. How did they all suddenly, within 24 hours, decide to make the right move? I actually asked Peter Thiel about this. And what he said was, it's not purely like, you know, Jack from Twitter gets on the phone with Zuckerberg and he's like, let's do it now. And then they get on the phone with the Pinterest guy, whoever that is, or gal, you know, let's do it. It's not that. What he said basically is the way they operate because of what you just laid out, they come from the same places. Their identities are so forged from the same muck that basically once somebody does it, everyone does it. Like, oh, you've given us the green light to do the thing. So it, 
you could even go back even further than that. I mean, when they took out Alex Jones, how did he get taken out on all of these things at the same time? Again, it doesn't matter what you think about Alex Jones. It doesn't matter what you think about Sandy Hook. It doesn't matter what you think about any of those things. How did these huge structures all come to the same conclusion at roughly the same time? It's because of exactly what you just laid out there. So, so the real question is, well, then what do we do to fight these things that seem insurmountably huge? David beat Goliath. I mean, I really believe that. I, I believe in the individual. I, it, it is the story that has been told a million times before us and will be told a million times after us. And I don't think that these amorphous companies that sort of represent nobody, you know, Facebook has morphed into meta now, right? Nobody really wants to live in the metaverse, right? Nobody does. We all don't. We all know that we don't. We all seen enough sci-fi movies to know this ends horribly with robots killing us and, the, and Skynet being turned on. We all know that bad stuff is on the horizon because of algorithms and robots and, and humans will be the imperfect creature in the supposed perfect system. But we don't do anything about it. We don't do anything about it. Well, nobody represents the individual anymore. And I think so, so that it just keeps going. Meta, it's like, is, there, is anyone at Meta at the offices being like, you know, maybe it's not the greatest thing for the future of humanity that we're going to strap virtual reality helmets on and we're going to, you know, live in this virtual planet and they're going to stick a feeding tube in our mouth and we'll basically be in some combination of idiocracy and total recall or something like that. Like, we all know that's not the future we really want, right? We all know it. But nobody there represents the individual. So these companies end up representing these ideas that are often bad ideas because bad ideas are usually easier to spread. And, and then we end up in a situation like this. So I don't know that I answered your question exactly other than we, we have a lot of things we have to do somewhat quickly. I mean, I think it's, it's if I pull out one thing that you just said, it's that they form their identities out of the same muck. I think the identity part is really, because it's really important because why are people attracted to the idea of the metaverse, which I, I think there are people who are very attracted to this idea. It's, it's because there is such a collapse of meaning. Um, and this is not unique to America. It's, it's definitely something that the whole Western world has experienced, but in, in, in the whole left by defining yourself through family or through religion, organized religion, or through civic organizations, or for that matter, as a member of a nation, um, you know, all, all of these traditional bases for, and by traditional, I just mean, this is how human beings have formed their most sort of core identities for the last, you know, for, for millennia, all of those solutions seem untenable in modern life. And I think that's a large part of why, why, for example, the woke are so, um, you know, they have that religious fervor as, as, uh, John McWhorter has pointed out many times or, or why, um, you know, people seem to make decisions that uh, to you and I sound like total recall or sound like, um, you know, dystopia. But if you're alone, um, you haven't, you don't have a close relationships with your family. Maybe your your family um, was, was never uh, sort of a unit to begin with. Uh, it, you've been shut down for the last two years. You probably didn't have a lot of friends to begin with. And now perhaps you have none except for these online communities, your, your real identity starts to become who you are on these online communities. And the metaverse sounds really great because then you can attach a whole body to that right in, in the metaverse, because that seems so much more appealing than the difficulties of real life. You know, do you think the, that we are going to be able to fight these political battles absent finding whether it's a return to some of these previous forms of identity or, or uh, strong sense of self out of those things, or whether it's something that you and I probably have no idea what it looks like, but moving beyond the postmodern into perhaps the, the post, post, postmodern. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, but a it scary seems to place. me that, that fundamental problem of meaning has to be solved. Yeah, there's definitely a room or whatever they're going to have, whatever they call it in the metaverse for the post, post, postmodern world. I don't know if they're rooms or universes or galaxies or whatever they call it. Um, well, look, you know, I toured with Jordan Peterson for about a year and a half and we went to about 20 countries, 120 stops. And it was an extraordinary time. And, and Jordan is grappling with this, I would say, at the highest possible level. You know, how do we reconnect, I would say, to meaning at an individual level and at a societal level in a time of like odd technological adolescence and with this weird new world on the horizon that we can all see and, you know, 
yes, I think you're right. I should have said it a little clearer. Some of us are rushing towards it and are very excited to throw the helmet on because they feel that their lives are so miserable. So it's not that everyone thinks it's so bad, but I think people that are a little more thoughtful in how humanity works are probably a little more wary of the thing. But we all know that this world is on the horizon. The old world is ending. What happened to meaning and all of these things? All of the traditional beliefs and thought and, and lessons that were churned throughout the ages that have been taught from a biblical perspective or through cultural perspectives or, or uh, whatever your religious traditions are, et cetera, et cetera, we're throwing an awful lot out right now. I would say first that the, the atheists, the, the really known atheists, have a, um, they have a lot of this on their hands, unfortunately. That is not to say that you cannot be an atheist and a good person, of course. I always have to say that. Of course you can be, and I have some friends that are atheists, although even my atheist friends are kind of starting to shake a little bit at the moment. But the atheists, you know, it's my belief, my belief, that whether you believe you believe or you don't, you do. Um, that you humans end up believing in something one way or another that there is something so fundamentally part of the human experience that it's not just this thing right here and now. It's not just me talking to you in this moment. It's not just the wires that we're speaking through and the computers that people are watching this on and the, and the devices. There is something that, that has stretched through time that is fundamentally part of the human experience that, if you, that you need to believe in. You need to, to function. It, it's just... If you don't believe in something, you will end up mostly believing in only what is now. And by the way, that's why so many well-known atheists all sort of lost their minds over Trump because they didn't believe in God, but they started believing that Trump was the devil because the, the desire for need is so important. So I think they have a lot to grapple with on that front because what that did then was create the conditions for America to become such a secular society that although I'm for secularism in, you know, of course, in your own life, and I don't want to force anyone to be religious per se or something like that, but if you blow up all of the stuff that, that got us to an extraordinary place of freedom where we, in essence, destroyed racism, we, we pretty much did in America, and they couldn't leave well enough alone. And this is the fault of the liberals because they decided equality wasn't good enough. We got to go to equity. And then that became a religion a religion that they're always chasing. So we have to return to some of this stuff. And this actually sort of brings us back to where we started because you asked me about some of the traditional conservatives and the say more religious types and how can they blend that understanding, which obviously if they're watching this and they hear me say that, they're going, all right, Dave, I'm with you. But you see maybe a little still more on the libertarian side of things. Well, it's like, all right, great. That's a great spot for us to all to talk. And, and that's really where I want to focus my energies because that's the place that, that we have to fix if we're gonna do this going forward. Well, thank you so much, Dave Rubin, for coming on High Noon. I think they blow stuff up, as you just said, uh, then, then our project truly has to be to build. Um, so I think that's what, what you, you're doing with your show, um, with, with Rumble, with Locals, um, really trying to uh, build a world in which we can have the kind of conversations that we just had today and, and um, have them have them mean something in our lives. So uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Dave Rubin, for coming on High Noon. I enjoyed talking to you.